0: hey rod what's, what's happening going on? i want to talk about pea and hemp protein okay p like like actual urine p-e-a oh. peas uh, oh got hemp it protein. got it mm-hmm. i was very
1: nonchalant about the idea of it being urine i guess i've come to accept anything in in this
0: part of this i don't show. know that urine has a high nutritional value <laughs> No, probably not. I it is sterile. That's why the astronauts can drink theirs like what is it, seven times or something like that? I don't know. But what was
1: that? But pea and what?
0: Pee and hemp protein. Uh the one I use is called Sunware. There's a whole bunch. Mm. But um you know, just kind of looking for more sustainable protein sources. Mm-hmm. and also i don't really like the whey proteins because mm. like, of the the dairy like the case casein or casein i don't really know how you say it but it's a it's a i think it's casein yeah it's a dairy based protein and i like i don't have many, i have like a dairy sensitivity i think mm-hmm. not an allergy so, do so i I'll, like break out i get yeah. like um yeah you know, sometimes my stomach will not love me for that yeah but I, I the pea and hemp Tastes good, mm-hmm. and it I, I have pretty good results from it. I like it. P P E A. Speaking of P speaking of P E E though, if sometimes <laughs> P protein can cause a buildup of uric acid, which would be a mm-hmm. bad thing for the for the pee and for that for when, when you when you need P facts, you come here. <laughs> P E A P E E. Let's go.
2: In common podcast welcome this is a place where we explore the fact that we have more in common than that which divides us by anchoring humanity in compassionate conversation i'm rocky voria and i'm an avid listener of this podcast i was also a guest in season one episode 29 titled be yourself and believe in yourself and i'm happy to be introducing today's show what i love about this podcast is that it showcases people who come from so many different walks of life we get to hear stories from actors, artists, people in business. We get their perspectives on racial tension, social inequalities, and other difficult topics, giving us each an opportunity to listen, learn, evaluate, reflect, and ultimately evolve. Now, remember, you can find all things More In Common at moreincommonpod.com. Their episodes, merchandise, blogs, and definitely, if you like what you hear, give them a listen in your favorite podcast app and leave a review. We'll try to read it on a future show. And finally, be sure to share, share, share. Again, I'm delighted to introduce today's episode. The More In Common podcast hosts have dubbed 2020 a decade possible, and this is season two, Discovery. Today's episode is with Rob Reynolds. Rob is an acclaimed artist with works in museums around the world. He's a sculptor, painter, mixed media, and installation artist. He has acclaimed works at Burt Green Fine Art, Pergamon Museum in Berlin, the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles, and many more. One of my favorite Rob Reynolds installations was called An Ocean View for Denver, since I'm from Colorado. But Rob was born in Newton, Massachusetts, and currently has his studio in LA, California. He has great perspective on many topics and provides insights and perspectives that make for a fun and insightful conversation. This conversation actually took place back in August 2019, but we're thrilled to finally bring it to your ears. During the conversation, you'll hear Rob's perspective on what being an artist is, including how he got his start and the role his parents played, what it was like for Rob to grow up west of Boston in the 1970s, the classism, racism, and homophobia that existed. You'll hear his thoughts on the liberal fantasy and also how he tries to use art to make an impact. He shares some interesting comments on how the current election has impacted his work, talks about his focus on climate change, community, and managing optimism. They cover a lot with Rob in a short amount of time, but I hope you enjoy today's conversation as much as I did. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show with Rob.
1: So before we get into this episode, I got to tell you a little bit of something that Rodney got me into about seven months ago. One of those things, like, he talks about these things all the time, and I hardly ever try them. But this one Super in particular, true. audible, audible for audiobook listening. Like I tell you, I love reading books. I don't have a lot of time. I got two kids, two jobs. I got, uh, you know, a relationship that I try to invest in, but I really like to read books and there's a lot of information out there that helps us learn for our, for our business, learn for podcasting, learn for all of the things or just pleasure in reading. Mm-hmm. And it gives me that space to, to listen. So Rodney, thank you for for putting me onto them because I'm excited to put other people onto it too.
0: Yo man, glad I could help. I love it. I've been doing it for years. I highly recommend it.
1: And I know you do it for, for driving and yeah, I do it for driving time.
0: in LA and, and honestly, you know, you get to get one book for free. You can, you can send a book to a friend for free. You can return any book if you don't like it. I mean, that's lovely. And, uh, you know, they got a, a trial period going on. You get a free, free membership to start. So, we're going to put a link on our website. Go check it out. Uh, it's an affiliate link. We do get a little bit on the back end, so you're supporting us. We would really appreciate it. Put our website, moreincommonpod.com. Check it out. Check it out. Audible.
3: Something that I feel, which is I think that people do have what one of my favorite teachers of all time, Robert Cole, said a call to service in us. And I think if you don't do a little bit at least a little bit for people for no remuneration. You know, you can't get paid for it. Can't get action from it, can't, you know, it's not, you know, you're not, your career's not gonna be boosted by it, but if you don't do a little bit of something um, at least, then you don't feel right in the world. Dive in head first. Uh, and accepted that one could actually do what one wanted with one's life. Um, It's basically all I ever wanted to do.
0: All right, we're back. We're here with Rob Reynolds. Rob, how are you, sir?
3: I am well. I'm happy to see you both. Thank you for joining us. Happy to see you. Thank you for coming over. Yeah. love your your studio.
1: studio. We're in his studio right now yeah. which is downtown LA impossible DTI. to describe the feeling you have when you're in here of peace it is very peaceful it's very calming serene I feel like I'm on uh, what was that SNL skit or the SNL skit from back in the 90s the shwetty balls um, with balls. <laughs> with balls <laughs> <laughs> Like just, just it's a it's a mock of NPR and they oh, talk yeah, like where this they're like the whole like time and, and they very, <laughs> very
3: welcome to my studio. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic to see you. Here. The cadences of <laughs> intellect. That's right. In enlightenment. <laughs> welcome to my bubble. Now, when you come to your bubble.
0: Hmm. So, Rob, I think uh, just to kick this off. It would be really easy to call you an artist. I mean, you 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 make art, but how would you? How do you describe or define yourself?
3: I simply say I'm an artist. Yep. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. I'm fine with it. There were moments in my life in which I was uneasy about it for whatever reason.
0: Um, Did you figure out? How, do you know why? Oh,
3: I, look, there are certain, um, I suppose, pitfalls or cultural overdeterminations and cliches that I was wary of. but you know we have lots and lots of good examples of artists that have lived exemplary lives and uh, I'm fortunate to have grown up with lots of great examples and with artists who simply show um, good ways of being in the world and I think now art practices can include lots of different types of activities and uh, so when I say I'm an artist I don't necessarily you know, intend to be an artist in the way that Bob Ross perhaps was an artist. Good old
0: Bob Ross.
3: Um, He's made a real strong kind comeback. man as he was. A calming man as he was. But, you know, now art is in, Bob in Bob an Ross. unsiloed world. It can include lots of different things. It can be a very inclusive process and practice, and it can include the social and the world as it is. And, uh, you know... Lots of different kinds of things, and i and I think if you unsilo some of the traditional distinctions, it can be a pretty interesting way of being in the world.
0: So, yeah. kind of not wanting to be pigeonholed. To when, 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 you were thinking about those, tr- some of the negative,
1: those cultural over determinations.
0: Yes, yeah. uh,
3: I, I think, uh, you know, it 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 just depends on how you define your practice, and for mm. me. Um, painting takes the most time and so it forms the de facto center of my practice. I, they, the paintings take a long time to make for me. I care about them very much. A lot of thought goes into them and a lot of, uh, a lot of traditional types of artisanal labor. But I would also say that research and being in the world and reading and meeting people and attacking issues and thinking about how we can make the world more interesting uh, and a better place is sort of part of stuff that I'm thinking about these days. Um, And uh, I I guess if there's one issue at the core of what I do that kind of is a common ground, it sort of is about making the unseen visible in one way or another.
1: Hmm. Now, you said... Before, like before we sat down, is that the last three years have are particularly interesting time for artists.
3: What do you mean by that? I feel that the election of the current president, President
0: current- Donald Trump, I'm just 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 because there's no time Kern- stamps. Of- yeah. Kern- yeah, yeah. yeah. Burn- Burn- events. If this is being aired 10 years from now, hopefully he's still not the president. <laughs> he's supreme czar at that point.
1: should we be so blessed? <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast over. Well done, foreshadowing a
3: possible <laughs> That's a great outcome. way to... Yeah. A, there should be a new executive in the executive branch, and in 10 years post-haste, people will listen to this. Um, yes well you know look it, it turned a lot of assumptions that i had about the world on it on um on their head and was you know i feel sort of eager to be awake in the world in a different way and to not wait for the government to do all kinds of things that i used to think that it would do mm-hmm. and you, and me? uh and also to sort of lean in with the art that i make and try to intentionally dedicate some of my time and energy to things that I care about.
0: And, and I, I feel where you want to go because of that. Yeah. But? But I want to ask, before we get into... I'll, I'll flag it. Flag it. What got you into art? Have you mm-hmm. always been an artist? Asthma.
3: Asthma. <laughs> <And, no.
1: laughs> God. God damn <Did> <laughs> Did not see it. Talk about foreshadowing. That did not occur there.
3: Little wheezy kids outside of Boston have to find stuff to do, and you know you have to kind of sit and get into a meditative state to catch your breath and uh, cope with the, all the medicine and all the different kinds of things. And drawing and painting and making building things uh, was definitely sort of my refuge and what was interesting to me and i i suppose i have an aptitude for it and it was sort of what i liked sure. and once i was sort of allowed myself to dive in headfirst first uh, and accepted that one could actually do what one wanted with one's life um, it's basically all i ever wanted to do
0: oh, did it that take, take- <laughs> We've known each other for 17 years. Yeah. And sometimes, a lot of times, and not even finish each other's It's not sentences. even it's finishing. It's not even finishing. It's the it's a, same well, sentence. and it's funny when you think about podcasting. Like
1: a lot of people don't say, Well, I've never." A, a lot of people say, "I've never been interviewed by two people." And generally, we find it's a basically way to make one it work person. because you know of that very reason. So I'll give
0: you the honors. <laughs> Did it take a long time to come to that? Uh, one can be what one. Wishes allowing yourself to be an artist. Yes,
3: it did, and for whatever reason, not because of my parents, who were really wonderful and full of ideas and immensely creative. My mother's a painter. My father. So they were. Is a polymath. Um, They were supportive of whatever I wanted to do. I was very very lucky, but they had lots of interesting polymath. He's sort of has lots of lots of different talents.
0: Oh, renaissance man. He's like that. I'm gonna start calling myself a (laughs) polymath.
3: So it's going to sound a little pretentious, but I, I say go. with I you. have
0: no problem sounding pretentious and/or bougie.
3: Not only was he a polymath, he was an autodidact. Oh, wait, wait, self-taught. So, so and a lot of stuff. Wait, wait, I've he, heard he, of
0: autodidact. I can't place it yeah. right now.
3: He um, he could fix a car and build a house and you know, uh, you know repair a a uh, a stereo and sweat a pipe and uh And be funny and and uh, you know talk to you about the way the universe worked and all kinds of stuff, and he still does, um, but anyway, just being around parents that were immensely creative was very helpful, and I wanted to be a doctor, and then I sort of collided head on with my um, lack of aptitude for that and uh Pardon? I think I think I you know just maybe being a sick kid I just wanted to help people feel better mm. or something about that sure. but and I you know look I still look upon that noble that noble uh, life's work with envy truthfully and I sort of am always trying to figure out ways that we might make our art do good work as well. And I believe that it's possible sometimes, and not possible other times. But there's a little bit of that in what I think about.
0: What was it like growing up out of Boston? And like, I'm assuming you grew up in the '80s.
3: Um, I'm I'm older than I look. Um, I would say I grew up in the '70s, and '80s, and I was very aware of of uh, what life was like um, in our comfortable suburban setting um, outside of Boston. But I was very aware of the Vietnam War. I was aware of busing. I was aware of of, uh, certainly somewhat vaguely aware of class distinctions. um, When stuff like the Chelsea fires would happen, and you'd suddenly see things exposed (coughs) in ways, mostly from the relentless presence of uh, morning television and my grandparents and whatever um but what was it like it was it was uh privileged it was colder um it was relatively privileged where i lived but i think it was i think it was pretty gnarly and pretty intense for a lot of people
0: Mm -hmm. yeah well i mean boston has a interesting history especially around race and um Irish I mean a lot of stuff around race right like Irish blacks like all kinds of things does any of that play into some of the stuff we'll get into later what you focus on with your art and the things you're interested in like does anyone go back to that or I
3: was very lucky to have great teachers who were very in tune with stuff that was going on in Boston Around busing, for instance, around it wasn't called social justice in in my experience back then, in in the kind of pedagogical whatever <clears throat> environment or ecosystem. But uh, you know, my teachers were were pretty dialed in to what was going on, and we talked about current events. Uh, I was very lucky to go to a public school with a kind of pilot program or an experimental program where teaching was experiential and based on real stuff that was actually going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and- uh, How
1: common was that education at that time?
3: I don't think it was that common yeah. in public schools. I don't know. Um, I, I, we had a pretty good little bubble going where I where I was, uh, west of Boston. But, um, you know, the people were very open about the, um essentially segregated nature of the city mm. and people were pretty open about um uh race and, and probably also class-based antagonisms based on different types of life experiences i mean i think when you say
0: open you mean like it was discussed uh, aware of it or? aware
3: of it and or just uh radiating symptoms of it mm-hmm. you know use of, of, uh, of strong language and awareness of, of uh, racial bias, some people doing stuff about it, some people not. Um, but uh, I mean, I think the kind of the, at the time, the liberal and progressive democratic um, push in the state legislature was pretty, was pretty powerful. And it was a bitter pill, but it was a pill that everyone had to swallow and kind of deal with. But um, I mean, the, the daily um, sort of agony and pain that people were feeling um, and the uh, around definitely busing and people in, in South Boston being very vocal about it. And I just sort of think about what the kids must have endured. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine jumping on a bus in Dorchester and ending up in Wellesley mm-hmm. at a high school and walking in. And, you know, even the most liberal and enlightened kids probably um, were forced to reckon with it. I think it was a really very powerful They were probably moment. hit
0: with bias
1: pretty hard, right you, smack in the face. Being that you were west of Boston, did, you, did your school have any um, exposure to busing?
3: No. Mm-hmm. No. I think it, it, it's quite possible it was just a little bit too far. Mm-hmm. It was seventeen miles as the crow flies. Okay. Due west on Route Two. And one you know, one of the things that, that the, the sort of the liberal fantasy in which we lived was informed a little bit by New England transcendentalism, like mm-hmm. think Emerson and Thoreau and um um abolitionist rhetoric and, you know, a certain piety around that and and a certain pride around it. And um, I'm certain that we all could have done more. Mm. Uh, And I'm certain that there was a lot of stuff that was sort of left unquestioned. Um, I mean, the the, sort of the more, the uglier and more obvious kinds of uh, displays of anxiety over difference Mm. were was more around homophobia in the 80s i mean it was just like crazy how how extreme that was um especially and how how common it was how common as a kind of like just like reflexive yeah reflexive kind of use and i mean one of the one of the blessings of this moment i think is that we have a lot more um awareness a lot a lot better tools to kind of be thinking about and be conversing like yeah. i don't
0: what are do you liberal fantasy like going into that just a little bit more what do what do you mean by that
3: i think that there was a sense of oh we've kind of dealt with most of these issues and which we can is kind of which is very on.
1: bostonian in general that well, idea is they we fix that right We're good you yeah. you might have felt it in new hampshire mm-hmm. as
3: well i mean i, I think um I mean, I, a teacher of mine who I learned a tremendous deal from um, referred to Boston as a ladder, as and everyone's climbing it, mm. and a lot of people are falling off of it, but that kind of hierarchical thing about it, which may come from the English caste <clears throat> system that people were famously escaping... Um, air quotes quotes. (laughs) escaping for those of you in the viewing audience
1: (laughs) those were scare quotes in our live production here the man has walked off the left side of the stage no
3: but look it's a heavy thing and um, I think that there was a lot more to talk about than we talked about and I think now certainly with Trump being on this wild rampage and you know, I guess the common term now is dog whistling. Um,
0: what does that mean? Do you, think, either of you know? I'm not
1: real sure. It's just, I mean, if I were to explain it, it's just the the concept of you know blowing a whistle to get dogs riled up. Like everybody, everybody, get them riled up. So you blow that that silent whistle that people can't hear that dogs hear, and they start just barking. Ah, uh, so I mean, okay.
3: it's it's yeah. a very it's a very uh condescending it's kind of term, uh, right yeah, because totally. in, in it right it's it's about a whistle that plays to the frequency of an animal that can only hear that frequency and they're getting wild from it's it a very
1: eloquent way to say it yeah uh, and,
3: it, and but just the same that people that have been feeling repressed or, or have not been openly expressing racist or classist or whatever kinds of feelings through acts of hate Somehow feel like they can talk about it, mm-hmm. and feel feel it, or they can act out on this stuff. And Trevor,
0: Trevor Noah said a couple of nights ago, he's like, "Man, it's uh, white people get really uncomfortable when black people talk about racism." Um, god, he said it's so much funnier. It was like that wasn't very funny at all. You no, know, it, it wasn't funny. He him. was like, he's like, "Oh my god!" Oh, he's like, white people call black people racist. When they talk about racism that they've been experiencing their whole life, and and it was in the context of another joke, that's why it was funny. But
3: well, a little a little bit of humor to to uh, let in the f- dough. yeah, 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 yes, or to let to let a little air in, because there's so much anxiety around it. There's yeah. so much anxiety, and there's so much pain around it, and fear fear of offending people, fear of not knowing, not knowing the right position, not or having an unformed position or fear of the darkness of one's feelings. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very... Uh, it's heavy, and it's, it's a real thing.
1: Now, does this go to... You mentioned it turned a lot of your assumptions on their head, the election of Donald Trump. What assumptions? And does this tie into
3: that? That, we're, that we somehow... We're better than Charlottesville. Mm. You know, that we moved past that,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know, that that um, as a nation, as a nation, as a, as a people, that we would not allow that, or that it wasn't in our spirit, yeah, at all. You know, not that you know. Look, that it was maybe it was a latent impulse, but that our better natures were going to get the best. We're going to we we were, we're going to propel us forward. That we had made an incremental gain. That you know, that, uh, no, it was a it was a shocking wake-up call. I mean, the joke was the bubble, right? And a, and a lot of white liberal assumptions were lampooned very eloquently and in a very funny way by those SNL skits. Um, you know, like Brooklynites <laughs> bragging about the news feed from HuffPo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thinking about... They're cortado, <laughs>
1: and they're four African American friends here <laughs> in the bubble. That's right. I invited Terrell over yesterday.
3: One one two one one. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's
1: I mean that kind of goes to the whole the essence of Boston in general, or the North when you think about the history of the North. Yeah, in in relative relative terms a lot of people still consider the south the racist part of the country because they supported and fought for slavery in yeah. the civil war yet um the north you talk about busing um from an at that time the north fought it and actually had more segregated schools because of the geography of the space like you had regional schools in the south so busing actually had an impact, whereas you had local schools in the north so that it was based on your your the, the the neighborhood that you lived in so you know and there were some judicial judgments that that allowed for this area not to have the bus in this area only because of the way they moved and and segregation is just as big in the north it's
0: just it's not hey it's not jim crow Right. So I wanted to go into the liberal fantasy. Right. Yeah. John Oliver has a John Oliver has a really good piece on segregation and I think I think he uses New York. Talking about everything you just said. And um it's like that fantasy. It's like, yeah, no, no, no. Like, we don't believe that. Like, we don't want slaves. We don't think that, so we're good. Yeah. Like, so everything else is okay. Or or we're set. And and,
1: and it's like a lot of it. There was a I, don't, I think it was The Daily Show. They did one of the, their, their field pieces, you know, and they were in Boston asking Bostonians if they think Boston is racist when it is considered one of the more racially divided places in the country, especially in the 80s and the 90s, um, during the Celtics versus Lakers, just from a oh, sports yeah. representation, like the division around uh, white Larry Bird versus black Magic Johnson. I right, mean... And it was it was vitriolic, it, we right? Had, we
0: had Parrish too.
1: <laughs> we did, but he was he was the he was the okay but guy, right? He, he, but he was one of the that's the, good the
0: sociological like. thing. Yeah, where it's like, like we have our guy. He's okay. Yeah. yeah.
3: Well, look, it was very obvious to any any halfway compassionate human being that Jim Rice was not treated well mm-hmm. in the outfield. Yeah, and that that oil can Boyd was not treated very well in a tough town. Yeah. It's no, no secret that there are radical class divisions. And I mean, we could invoke the term intersectionality here. We could kind of try to untangle a lot of the distinctions. But the power dynamics are very heavy there. And yet there is also a liberal tradition of trying to seek and find our better selves. But there's also a moment of reckoning. I mean, I I had the good fortune of going to Brown University in the 80s, late 80s, graduated in 90 and a half or something. Um, And even then, the Brown family's um, relationship to the Dutch East India Trading Company and slave trading was kind of murmured about. Hmm.
0: I didn't realize that. I didn't know that It was
3: murmured about. It was not talked about. Hmm.
0: What I, what I did think about was, if somebody tuned in right before you said that, the Brown families. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about the Brown. No, we're, we're talking about John and Moses
2: of the Providence Plantations. One,
3: a Quaker who had distaste for his brother's proclivities for trafficking in human beings. And the other, you know, a, a merchant. A merchant who's buying and selling stuff and great at it and stuff the rumor like was the, the rumor was that there was a yeah, uh, yeah it's heavy it's awful um, there the rumor was that there was a, a tunnel connecting the, the uh, brown mansion down to the waterfront so that after it became unfashionable though before the emancipation proclamation they could still have slaves working in the household but Look, the university's been doing the hard work of reckoning with it. And they, you know, and this is where art might begin to come into the conversation. They commissioned Martin Purrier to do a a sculpture on the green, uh, on the hallowed uh, green of a giant um, chain into a submerged, you know, ball underneath the ground. Mm. There's a lot of teaching, a lot of of reckoning, and I think a lot of good work being done around it. And, you know, it's no secret now that a lot of New England merchants and bankers profited very directly from slavery and from different types of businesses that were very morally suspect. You know, the uh, the opium wars, for instance. And one of the projects that I did is around um, kind of unseen or... Um lesser known maritime catastrophes and disasters, like there was a company that was finance uh, in Boston that financed essentially a, a um an opium cutter to be built in Baltimore outside of the puritanical gaze. Frederick Douglass may have worked on it it was in built in the shipyard uh where he had his first job as a free person um, and uh then it went and applied the waters between. I guess, Rangoon in, in Burma and China, and generated massive amounts of profit for bankers back in Boston. And it was a sort of unseen business practice. Hmm. It, was, it didn't have the same moral tenor as the Sackler family is getting now around the right. opiate could, right. you know, disaster, but it's, no, it's frowned upon. But there, there are these hypocrisies that are kind of braided into the
0: culture. And, I mean, that's you know, at the, of the core thing. of this country. Yeah, Like, ill-gotten gains
3: gotten gains
1: where do you see you said you know how where do you see your art kind of coming back to the reckoning of the last three years and really trying to change your assumptions helping move and advance in a positive way like that visualization that you just painted about that i mean. Is it beyond that just creating visualizations or like, how do you, how do you play that in and intertwine it?
3: Well, you know, look, making paintings is not ladling soup for the hungry. No. Making paintings is not building shelters for the homeless. And we have 300 people living in this neighborhood now on the street, in a four block- In this neighborhood? This neighborhood, this neighborhood. Um, Making paintings is not, Um, you know creating jobs for the unemployed Uh, I think paintings can talk about I think historical events historical material in a in a way paintings can also be frivolous and beautiful I mean think about a saxophone solo you know there's a certain frivolity to it a certain beauty to it Um, certainly it has its histories um, I think that there's a really important place that art takes in our it, for our souls, for our culture. Um, but I also want my work to do more, and really, you know, I'm kind. Of, it's, it's not compelled by liberal guilt or whatever, but I feel I feel compelled to allocate a bunch of my time to try to participate in different types of activities that I feel are helping people. So I'm working with a friend on, and some friends on uh, a um, homeless oh, campaign called Everyone by the United Way and just doing some graphic work for them and stuff like that and that's something that I felt very compelled to do starting two years ago for whatever reason. Um, Because I don't want—I don't think we can wait for the government. It's not going to save us. And you know, something—we're a city where we have fifty-six thousand people on the street. You know, where to begin—that's the question. And I think maybe if we all just do a little bit of whatever we can to help. I mean, I'm interested in air quality, and I have a, a, a concept that I'm working on with some activist organizations to try to bring awareness about air quality. I mean, think about something that's at once universal, it's everywhere and it's nowhere. Um, But those that live in South L.A., in the corridor between downtown L.A. and Wilmington and the port suffer the most because of traffic, because of trucks. Trucks generate 40 percent of our uh, emissions and there are a hundred days a year when you can't breathe the air here and the people that live underneath the 710 and the 605 and the 105 and all those you know roads that we sat are satirizing our in the californians yeah the californians <laughs> the californians exactly.
1: yeah,
3: yeah. uh yeah you know so like i i i think that art can participate in these broader conversations and i'm skeptical about certain things like social practice and institutional critique and these things that have been kind of accepted ways of of um, I support it but I'm not you know sort of skeptical of certain of the ways that they're institutionalized and artists have kind of narrowed down what it means to be an artist I think we can think of ourselves as people that participate in the real world such that it is when you
1: when you talk about social practice and you said institutional critiques yeah like what what do you mean by
3: that it's a it's a I I don't want to waste our precious time. (laughs) 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 There is in the art world. um, Look, there are different. There are different, you know, um, movements that have been articulated very beautifully by art historians uh, that try to bring a little bit of form to the chaos of cultural production Mm. and help us understand uh, like certain types of social practices. So, like uh, an artist called Andrea Fraser, who I admire greatly, who's made it her task to um, help museum goers become aware of the power structure of boards and the way that art works uh, you know, uh, to greenwash, bring social and cultural capital to people that are involved in suspect business practices. It's happening very openly around the Whitney Biennial right now. There was a board member that has uh, become wealthy from selling mace. The mace is being used at the border. It's being used against children. And the artist said Mm -hmm. they don't want to be involved. They've drawn the line. I think it's a very good use of their political intentionality, bringing their force to bear and bringing this awareness into the world, you know, museums are not neutral places. The art world is not a democracy. Mm. It's probably an oligarchy at best, right? Mm. But such is the complexity and the contradiction and the problem of participating in the world and in the art world. Um, so, um, wait, where, do, where, where? Was I, I asked you what you meant about <laughs> social practice. And social practice? Kind of well, there's, this, yeah, very, there's yeah. this very, very cool kind of, you know, nascent art historical framework around people who are making work that um, openly employs those activist strategies mm. in their art practice so that that's put before the object the itself project. yeah, yeah and the, I, yeah, think it's, itself, I think i yeah. think it's a very cool thing as a painter you know i'm often sort of pigeonholed as a kind of reactionary artist doing this old fashioned thing but i still feel like there's uh, uh, some some uh some good uh um water to be squeezed to be wrung out of the towel of painting and i think that it can can be involved in um you know trenchant conversations and be beautiful at the same time
1: and you try to channel that now with the promoting or discussing climate change yeah
3: well look i think if i were to step back from my work over the last 10 to 15 years um It's been inflected by or informed by um, an awareness of climate change in one way or another. And how could it not be? I mean, it's affecting all of us Mm -hmm. in different ways. Um, I don't think everyone is going to be impacted and suffer equally. It's not the way it's going to play. It It
1: hasn't already. I mean, you look at India, they're having massive water shortages because their aquifers are drying up. Because of the use of yeah. natural water when we still have sprinklers and fountains and other things that we frivolously use for beauty.
3: Right. And then also the distribution of population and the distribution of water are not yeah. are too radically asymmetrical
1: 100%. kinds of things. Yeah.
3: And in Los Angeles we feel it very, very acutely. Yeah. I mean we could not help but feel it during the drought. Yeah. That's when uh, you know, I could you know when you become obsessed with something you see a little piece of it in everything and i think around the drought and the second and third year i was like wait a second something's going on here It doesn't feel right mm-hmm. um and you know the question is why well the reason is that our water comes from 300 500 and more than a thousand miles away and it was imported in a moment when there was a fantasy of limitless resources mm-hmm. and now we're up against the the very real Crushing realization that resources are not only limited, they're scarce. How do we deal with um, uh, deglaciation, or like water, like snow going away from mountains when two billion people get their potable water from glaciers on mountains? How do we reckon with that? Do mountains look different now? They do to me. Um, but I, And I want to paint them. Mm-hmm. and. I, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm wary of um, seeming like a kind of A, Cassandra, or B, smug, um, know-it-all about this stuff. I'm as affected by it as everyone else is, and I'm curious about it, and I want my work to ask questions openly and hopefully to uh, engage in conversations. I think there's
0: uh, a... Real quick, there's yeah. a tie-in to JPL with the LA water thing. Yeah. I saw a video of research they're doing in Colorado where we get a lot of water, and part of it has to do with the snow melt mass, melting faster than it had in previous years, and they wondered why. And they found out that it has to do with dust, dirt, because of four-wheelers, horses, like people having doing recreational things, more dust is in the atmosphere than normal, and it settles on the on the snow and allows it to heat up at a higher rate or faster rate than it would normally and then melt. Uh, and then uh, run off to the places where it would normally go just at a faster rate. And one of the things we don't do here in L.A. is collect water for some reason. It just runs off to the ocean, so then it's we're not drinking it because we don't have any desalinization plants. It's a whole other thing. But...
3: But the aquifer here could support my understanding is the aquifer here could support 250,000 people and since the la river was cemented over after the floods in the 30s by the army corps i think you're exactly right that the, the aquifer is not recharging a lot of it slips off to the ocean um, but then we also have the predicament of this kind of urbanization and density of population mm-hmm. and we have between i don't know depending on how you count between four and 10 million people living on an aquifer that could support 250,000. And naturally...
0: I ain't real strong at math, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's going to so, cover them ball. Yeah, as
3: Lenny Bruce said, uh, we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. Yeah. No, but, uh, go, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, finish your thought. Um, but look, I think art can be a really wonderful way of engaging in an awareness of sight and place and history mm. and you know whether it's Martin Puryear helping us understand that the the intense complicity and contradictions of the of Brown University and the, that, that legacy or artists that are working around water and land use in Los Angeles or whatever I think that that's kind of that's the stuff that's interesting to me and then also a lot of other stuff but mm. you know but that's sort of in terms of in terms of um, what is interesting to me. And and, then, you know, and certainly the the work that I'm doing um, around um, icebergs and and glaciers and water, and and that is, you know, right in the same kind of progression of investigation, of representation, how we make the unseen visible. How do we, in our cars, as Californians, on the 2 to the the 134 to 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 Colorado, to whatever, (laughs) When we hear on NPR that there is a, a, an iceberg the size of Rhode Island calving in Antarctica, and it's 110 degrees in June, and I'm stuck in traffic, how do I make a relationship, how do I formulate a relationship mm. between this site where I am and that site where that is mm-hmm. in a way that can lead to meaningful, um, productive, positive changes either in consumption or you know participating in broader conversation about awareness around this or bringing it into scale and i don't know the answers about this but at jpl for instance they're doing lots of work using um essentially military and surveillance technologies to do uh, remote sensing to analyze ice density Mm -hmm. to figure out how fast sea ice interactions are happening to predict how fast sea level is rising, uh, to help, you know, scientists make better predictions, to help shipping, to help all the kinds of things that have to happen. Um, I mean, I think they might take a very neutral view towards it. And I think that there's a kind of self-censorship that's happening in in the federal government around information around climate change, which is very frightening and stupid. Um, But again, don't wait for the government. Like, let's the three of us have a conversation about it and figure out. Like, I think. are we I
1: technically
0: agree. the government? Are <laughs> idealistic. There it is. Yeah. I but, mean, when do we the, like? When, when do we hold and them and it, and it ultimately accountable?
1: Comes down to yeah. I mean, what what do you what role do you see the government playing versus what role you see yourself playing? And you know what you're to be able to affect it. Now, I have to take a pause because we are approaching time. Yeah. How much do we have? Not none. Right.
3: We, we we can go another fifteen minutes. Yeah. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I just got the uh, approval. You got the green oh, light. Good. Good. <laughs> the most powerful. One of the most powerful people in your life. In our life. Yeah.
1: The CEO of the home. The, the, the the board of
0: directors. The supreme czar. <laughs> <laughs> the supreme.
3: Our babysitter. Yeah. Vanessa. Oh, <laughs>
0: <I'll>, <laughs> <laughs> we were way off. Who I am way
3: thinking. off. Previously. <laughs> This is the community. Yeah, this is the. Uh, it takes a village model. God forbid we should it invoke does. Archa- archaic forms of.
1: Uh, it does. I mean, liberal goodness.
3: fantasy. But anyway, yeah, it actually does. <laughs> archaic <laughs> I, forms I, of I, liberal fantasy. So, yeah, the, it takes a village. Yeah, but it, uh, does. It, it does. It, it, it really does. does. And it, we're, I think we're. I think it's how you define the your mass- village. The but massive, massive trend takes one. that we have to accept is that we're going to be local. Increasingly local. And it's happening. It is one hundred percent. And I mean, I
1: the reality is, like, we we have this fantasy. You talk about that fantasy of individual achievement, especially in Western culture, where, you know, that whole bootstrap argument or whatever it is. Like, no matter what we do, we need help. And accepting that we need help, but how that help manifests mm-hmm. itself. Like in L.A., help manifests itself very differently than, say, a, a rural, the town where you've got grandparents and other things like we've got grandparents you've got friends you've got like all these people who collectively put together right you say
0: that like we we bought our place in gardena like four years ago we got help from our parents like not much and but it was really a struggle to be like uh we need we need 10k more we need 40k more to help with this 20 percent down payment so we're not playing pmi yeah and at the same time like some of people that we know like their parents just bought them a place like cuz they were able to and that's how you continue that's the chain help. of wealth and like yeah. building I mean, and help manifests in but different ways but i was ways. like so proud yeah. or like i had to do it on my own that it was hard to ask for the help um probably partially cuz it was hard for them to give it like i know their situation but it's interesting like i was just thinking about that yeah. as you say that like and
1: and it does take a village like and it's not i mean at the if you try to do it all on your own you're going to you're going to find yourself like banging your head against the wall hoping that you have another hour in the day to do something i have to ask you a question though before rodney asks his final question as we come up on time because i think this one's going to take a longer answer you said you moved to la 15 years ago and haven't had a bad day since Yet you expose yourself to things that otherwise tend to lead to a more cynical outlook. And even in your comments about the last three years and other things, like how do you continue to maintain that optimism and positivity and have good days every day while you still inundate yourself with things that could easily make you go, what the hell, the world's falling apart. How do I how- like maintain that positive like the, the saying way, you don't have you haven't had a bad day in, in 15 years like it's an the awesome way, thing
3: the way that i i um maintain my optimism is with extreme pessimism hmm. um and uh a sense of look i think especially as as a parent um a kind of realistic reckoning of one's idealism with the world as it is and then like you want to make the world better make your list and dig in
1: mm.
3: you know i think that's what this is what we have to do and I, I don't have any delusion of of i am not doing so much i'm i am we are trying to survive and we are trying to have fun and we are trying to make the world a better place i am not I am not uh, Mother Teresa, and, and I'm certainly not Che Guevara, uh, and I'm not even I'm not even close to so many friends that volunteer, really, really get into it and and activists. Um, but I I I think um, I think digging in and and uh, and and taking some responsibility.
0: What in there? Why do you define that as extreme pessimism?
3: I was being cheeky.
0: Okay. <laughs> I, I just want to clarify. It's <laughs> sure. going for a cheap like, laugh. I really think things are no, going to no, 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 go to no, no, shit, no, no, but I'll try no, to work no, it out, no, no, right?
3: No, no, no. no, I think I think I think just being look. I look. I vacillate between the poles of extreme idealism, almost uh, gleefully naive idealism, and um, a very kind of you know unvarnished uh, sort of realistic sense of how things are. Um, but, look, I think there's a lot of joy and play and pleasure to be had and a lot of good work that isn't pleasurable and playful that we can do. And um, I hope that somehow um, my artwork can participate in it on some level as well.
1: Do you struggle with guilt about not doing enough? Yes. You? Yeah. I do.
3: Yeah? I do. What I issues? definitely... What issues specifically?
1: I think everything. I'm for, <laughs> no, and you know what I mean by that? <laughs> all the
3: matter in the universe. All the, all, all all of the things, no. you know, like, like the Mars I mean, thing. You, like I, I
1: haven't built my rocket you, yet. It, like on a, on a micro level, more specifically than on a macro level, like you talk about homelessness. I lived yeah. in Chicago for 10 and a half years, right? How many times I walked by... Someone on the street and didn't do anything, even at a macro level, to help influence a positive impact to the change of that circumstance. Or even just, you know, some people will sit down and have a conversation and get to know somebody and make someone feel seen. Like, these are those things that I always struggle with. Like, am I really doing anything or am I doing enough? And, yeah, and I, I you feel know, like
0: I've been given a lot. Yeah. I've got struggles, but I feel like I've been healthy parents that love me siblings that are that are smart and love me I've just been fortunate to get a lot and so I feel like I owe and I and and it's and it's a big like at times it's been a problem for me where I give more than I should and what
3: I, what are what are some of the concrete things that you guys are doing
0: I'm that, on the board of directors for the Boys and Girls Club of uh, Venice and that came out of specifically being a black man that's done well in a corporate sense and trying to show other black and brown children that it is possible and and show them that it's possible um and I know you do some volunteering.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean for me I've I have volunteered at the homeless shelter in Cleveland in their computer lab helping People apply for jobs and things like that. Um, you know, I'm on a uh, advisory board for the Cleveland Clinic to improve patient um, medical interactions within the Children's Hospital, specifically. But at the same time, and I, you know, I've done some volunteering at uh, a school in Cleveland. Which that particular volunteering, I think, my efforts could have been done differently. And then we do this, right? But at the same time, for me, I think my my biggest struggle is, I is that balance of I've got two little ones at home and a family that depend on me to do the things that need to be done for my ecosystem. But I'm always like, I need to do more for others too, but I only have so much time, energy, and in things to give resources. And, and you know, so it's like I'm investing all this energy in myself, my family. And it's like, am I doing enough for others? And do I have that time and resource? And that's where my guilt ultimately manifests when it comes to, am I doing enough? And I even think about it in terms of this podcast. Like, I know where we'll go, but are we doing enough? Mm -hmm. Yeah,
3: what I hear uh, in in both of your Good Works um, descriptions is that is something that I feel, which is I think that people do have what one of my favorite teachers of all time, Robert Cole, said, a call to service in us. And I think if you don't do a little bit, at least a little bit for people for no remuneration, you know, you can't get paid for it. Right. Can't get action from it. Can't, you know, it's not, you know, you're not, your career is not going to be boosted by it. But if you don't do a little bit of something, um, at least, then you don't feel right in the world and it's funny how kids suddenly take all of that <laughs> mm, you yeah. have to pour so, have so much, much energy, energy caring yeah. for another person and you learn so much from that but um look i i ask that question in a neutral way it's out of curiosity um and i i do truly believe i mean i i know i i could do much much more um, um, and have to dig in deeper and kind of feel in a funny way excited about it. But, you know, I've kind of over the years figured out different types of contortions like tithing profits from paintings to give to people that can actually do the hard work. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, a project that I did around alpine deglaciation or like basically like the glaciers all disappearing. I gave a percentage of profits to an organization called Earth Justice mm-hmm. who are actual lawyers who actually litigate. And they spend 60 million bucks a year doing actual great work, and I actually was sort of felt very relieved about that. Um, in terms of finding good organizations to support, like the the Boys and Girls Girls Club of Los Angeles, I mean a guy like Lou Danzler who founded yeah. the South South Los Angeles one yeah. is a great hero. I mean I'm an ant compared to him, but people that can actually do, yeah, you? You know, yes. <laughs> but but I mean, maybe just his call was different. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so.
0: Right. And maybe his resources at the time were different. Than, yeah. Like taking profits from painting and, and giving them to an organization with lawyers. Somebody, somebody we talked to recently said uh, something about wanting to attain power so they can affect good. And power can mean a lot of things. Money, uh, influence, legal standing. I mean, so uh, there's a lot of different ways to affect... I'm really Positive glad you change. said that.
3: I really, I'm really, because I was thinking about it before you guys got here. And, but I think there's a kind of malignant power, and I think in the case of Donald Trump, and I think a kind of uh, fantasy power that he projects. I think it's a kind of power that, quoting a really, really smart guy, is a kind of power that we should not be enamored of.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And his position was one should never be enamored of power. One should only ever be critiquing power and authority to be unpacking it, to be teasing it out, and to be figuring out how individuals and, you know, societies and cultures can be more productively powerful.
0: To so a t- large degree, I would agree with that. I think that there's the whole, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely saying, and you look at it, um, uh, we name the organization where, where it gets too big, or the individual gets put on a pe- pedestal too high, and they get get into whatever practice, sexual abuse, this, that, and the other. They We, we don't deal well with
1: that yeah, I mean, there's as, ultimately uh, the, power the and human
0: hope. ego wants it, but it doesn't deal with it well. And I think if if a organization is built right, and actually this is something to talk to you about later, um, if it's built with the idea in mind of like, hey, we're going to be inclusive. We're going we're to we hold these ideals, and we're going to build a way to keep them. Because from a from an from an organism level, from a structural level, you can build in the right things that keep the wrong things out. From an individual level, it's really hard. And that's where you need other people accountability that's why i mean there's
1: ultimately the power over and the power to right like the power over others or the power to influence right you right know, and there's and that it's how you channel it yeah. whatever that ultimately manifests and is there a natural transition that if you have the power to you'll eventually have the power over and then you're ultimately corrupted yeah right.
3: and there's the great barbara kruger t-shirt slogan from the 80s that we thought we dealt with which was abusive power comes as no surprise Mm -hmm.
0: Mm. and you know here we are human condition if
3: we're to think back in Boston as a kid and seeing you know a a kid screaming the n-word at a bus going through Southie on the way a medical bus going out to the suburbs uh, screaming at another kid and then being horrified in my jammies (laughs) watching (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the the you know the the morning news feed yeah. or it wasn't a feed it was like morning news Channel 4 um, I didn't understand what power I had I didn't understand it and this is one of the mm. things that I think is a great reckoning of it right now and and I think this notion of being woke and the notion of teasing out power who has it who doesn't have it and a kind of compassion for those that don't have it is a very important and very painful kind of learning that we all have to do right now. And that how thing be, you said. How to be it. an ally. Yeah. And how to not mm. presume like that someone can just do anything. Yeah. I mean, again, around, yeah. you know, what can a person that lives under the 710 do with their asthmatic child if they don't have anywhere to go,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know? For instance, and let's get tangible about it.
0: How well, and that thing you said about questioning power, breaking it down, that goes back to the comment about aren't we the government like in a democracy how do we question those that we put in power and how do we hold them accountable for why we put them in power
3: the world needs a good lawyer (laughs) that's 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 earth justice go to earthjustice.com and get involved give them money they're doing good stuff
0: we like so thank you for joining us this has been it's it's been fun it's been been. enlightening it's been there's been moments in the conversation where I'm like, I don't know yeah. if I'm keeping up, but <laughs> I, hope not. I hope not. Nah, but it's been good. Well, like, oh, thank you.
3: Yeah, no, thank you guys for making time. It's fun. Yeah, I, this I mean, is a been long hard. time in the works, right? Yeah, yeah, it has been. I mean, we first
0: scheduled good in September of last year. Good things yeah. are worth it. Uh, we always finish with asking what you would leave our audience with. Now, your audience, what would you what would you like to drop on if their ears? one thing.
3: How do we make the world a better place?